Welcome to the podcast of the Sunday Celebration from the Center for Spiritual Living in Huntsville, Alabama. We hope you feel the grace, the beauty, and the love of our community as you hear the message of the week. Many blessings to you. So when we step out of our egoic personality and we become still, even for a brief moment, we access the depths of divine love. It's not something that we have separate from others. It's something we share with all life. I was reading the Dalai Lama the other day, and he was asked, what is the most significant message that we could convey to the world that would help us? And as the spiritual leader that he is, he said, the simple idea that we're all connected, or as Thich Nhat Hanh would say, we inter are. So this love is like a, a tapestry and each of us are threads in that tapestry. There's a Jack Fowler song that says, we come together in this sacred moment. We bind our hearts and minds for we all form a family woven from one life, one life, one creation, undivided, all unique expressions of God, of love, we come together in one accord. To love, to serve the love, and to remember that we are the love. Ram Das was asked why we are here, and he says to love, serve, and remember. So this Sunday morning, I'm going to ask one simple question to launch this month. The question is, what do you love? What do you love? When you access what it is that you love, you are accessing God's message, love's message, that needs to awaken within the individual so that we might serve through love, so that we might remember that our true nature is love, and to let our actions come from that profound awareness of our true nature. When my beloved husband and I were in our 20s and searching, we had no clue who we were or how we should express our gifts in the world. We found a book that said, do what you love and the money will follow. And what he loved was children. So he went to get his master's in education and he spent 37 years with an avocation of a teacher, which he dearly loved. It was not what I loved. He tried to force it on me. 
but I loved plants, and so I went and got a master's degree in horticulture. Little did I know that being a landscaper was not a romantic job. So I went in to my heart, and I discovered that what I really loved was this love affair with the beloved. And so I dissolved into the love so that I could come back from that place and embody the very thing that had taken me into itself. So with a playful curiosity, I invite you to open your eyes now and we'll take a journey together. A journey home, if you will, to what we really are which is love itself. You can come in, Dina, and find a seat. Yeah. Mm. Last Sunday when I left church, I came home and I was kind of high on the experience. And so I had spoken about Simon, Saving Simon, the story of the donkey from New England. And I read it to the very end of the book, and I found myself going through a whole box of Kleenex by the end. Because this man named Katz, who loved dogs, has written maybe 10, 20 books. What he loves is the connection that he has with the four-leggeds. And then what you discover is that once he opens to the four-leggeds, they become his gurus, they become his teachers. And Simon, of course, the cover of the book, Simon was abandoned uh, in a farm in upstate New York. He had been starved to death, he couldn't walk. He was just a bag of bones, if you will. And when the vets saw him, they said, this animal needs to be euthanized. But he rescued him and he sat by his side and he read to him and he talked to him and he fed him and he brought him back to life. And what this donkey did for him was he taught him compassion. Because John Katz was angry. He was angry at a man who would abuse an animal and be given a fine of only $125. And he says, I cannot forgive someone who would treat an animal so harshly. But you know what? Simon didn't have any revenge. Simon didn't have any anger. And so you watch this man go through his healing process with all the different animals on the farm. There's the dogs, there's the sheep, there's the chickens. And there's this old donkey that seems to be taking care of him. At the very end of the book, uh, he, you know, being that he's a writer, he became famous. And people were coming out from New York City to see the guy in upstate New York who's got the dogs, the sheep herding dogs, and all these. And so they bring these kids out from the inner city who are abused, who've never been to a farm, who've never seen an animal. And um, the very end of the book, since I want you to feel the tears of love. Simon was an intuitive host to all these kids from the inner city. Remember, he's the guru now. He's healed himself from his abuse. And so here's Simon holding court. It was always hard to reconcile his troubled story with his true gentle nature. What if our true nature is gentle and we can bring it out through love? So he said he was, a, he was good at reading people, that he never approached people who were nervous around him. You know, animals tune into your emotional body. 
And Simon could tune into the emotional body. When someone was down and needed help, the donkey could tune into that. So he'd say this, for 10 minutes or so, one member of the group after another, they stepped forward with their hands out, and Simon crunched away as they gave him carrots, and they would come up and expect it from the visitors. They're all thrusting their carrots at Simon. But Juan stayed back. Juan was the little boy who'd been sexually abused, who was shut down, who couldn't um, relate. So Juan stayed back. He was clearly frightened by this big donkey, unwilling to get close or to offer him a carrot. So Simon had a whole ring of people that were around him. They were counselors. They were kids. They were holding their carrots out. But something drew him to Juan, who stood back by the gate. It's getting to be good. So Simon walked through the circle toward Juan, who was holding Father Joseph's hand and watching wide-eyed. And then he simply stood alongside the boy, staring out through the gate. And Juan says, what does he want? Because Juan was nervous at this stage. And John Cat said, he's waiting for you to scratch his ears. Now this kid's afraid of the donkey. So I'm going to skip down to the next page. So he takes the kids out to the field. He lets his dogs chase the sheep. And he, everybody's having a gay old time. And in the meantime, Juan is standing by the gate. And the donkey's walked over to Juan. And he's entertaining the kids in the bus. So Red and I did our sheep herding thing for the visitors. We put on a show for them. The boys were mesmerized. None of them had ever seen a dog as responsive or as agile as Red was. Red was the abandoned dog from Ireland that said, someone said, God told me to give you this dog. And he said, Red was a perfect fit. So Red's taking care of the sheep. And the idea that he could control the sheep seemed to absolutely fascinate these children. At the end of my demonstration, Father Joseph took my arm and he walked me out into the yard where I could see Simon and Juan were standing at the gate together. And he pointed toward them. Juan was standing in front of Simon and his forehead was pressed against <clears throat> the contented donkey. Simon and the boy seemed to be lost in their own world, communicating in a powerful and emotional way, a way that I could not have imagined just a few months earlier. In the last sentence of the book, you can't imagine what it, a gift this is for Juan, said Father Joseph, and he smiled. What a compassionate heart your donkey has. Now that's a love story. And you know when you tune into someone who's suffering and you've been there, you have a way of embracing it. So Robert, when you do your work, you're my Simon. And the little wands show up and you let them put their head on your shoulder. And there's something that's really um, intimate about that. Oh, so I didn't mean to start with the tears in my eyes, but maybe that's the way it's supposed to be. Um, uh, Adam and I were talking about um, the 12-step program and, and how it's based on addiction, but it's not on the substance so much as it is on the habit energy. Like, what are we addicted to? Like, I have my own addictions. Uh, one of my addictions is control. Another one of my addictions is... Um, I'm addicted to God and to love. Yeah, so 
what is it that's drawing you to it in a way that you can't deny it? You don't have to try to escape through a medication, but what if you could open to something that is so much greater than you are, and if it is pulling you into itself, maybe it's divine love that's calling you to rescue a donkey. We have a calendar in the men's bathroom, and every time I see it, it's these donkeys. Do you see it, Gene? And it's like, we rescued 30 donkeys today. Something in my life feels like I need to get busy taking care of some of the four-legged, like my beloved Jody does. I was privileged to attend a Doctoberfest, Barktoberfest event. <laughs> it was an I did not have a beer or a glass of wine. I drank water and I brought my one-eyed pug. And had I known in that fundraising event that I could make money off of a pug by sitting there looking so pathetic with his one eye, I would be a rich man today. So I thought of bringing him here and placing him up here on stage, and I'm sure that the collection would overflow. What? With a tip jar. With a tip jar. I mean, literally, people came up and said, where is the tip jar for Humphrey? And I thought, you know. And, and so divine love gives you a little chortle along the way. And what if we're all here to love, serve, and remember in whatever way that is, in this one life that we've been given? Um, one of my teachers is a man named Mark Nepo, and he teaches from the heart, and he talks about love. And in this book, The One Life Forgiven, he says, I was surprised to know that when a baby is born, that the arms, they're called the heart buds, they come right out of the heart. I'll give you a taste of how he puts it. First of all, and this is for you, Finn, he says, your work is your love made visible. Now, carry your, he also says, your work is devotion. He's quoting Khalil Gibran. So what if my work is not to be a pastor of a church, but my work is to channel divine love, to serve that love in the highest way, to create a space of community where we can all awaken to the same true nature. So your work is your avocation of your soul, and he contends by referencing Parker Palmer, who says, when you discover what you love, it will take you to what you are here to do in life. It's not about Trey being a school teacher. When I went to ASFL where he taught, you know when he would walk in there, he was love. He was this beautiful embodied, and the kids would come running up to him. Every year he was, he was voted on as the most popular teacher. Was he a great teacher? Not necessarily. He taught computers. And when he got his first job as computers, he had only taken one class in college, he got a C. And he says, David, I only took one class in computers and got a C. And I said, fake it till you make it. I says, they're kids, you're an adult. So he went out and bought a computer in Atlanta. He learned as he taught. So was he the greatest teacher? No, but was he the greatest heart? Yes, that was his avocation. He loved the kids, he still does. But it was his dream. So Mark Nepo says, whenever we touch, whatever we touch bears the mark of our heart because our hands and heart are forever connected. I was amazed to learn recently that as we form in the womb, the first sign of our arms are known as arm buds, and they go directly out of the heart. Did you know that, Jody? And then, he's, this is how he draws a conclusion. And when we feel love, we have an impulse to reach out and touch. Uh, you know when I lift the pug up, you know what he does? He reaches out with his little arms, because he can, because he had the surgery. He literally reaches out with his little arms. It's so cute. Um, these are known as the arm buds. So when we feel love, we have the impulse to touch and to reach out. That is why when speaking from the heart, we tend to speak with our hands. And then this was a little disturbing to me. And he says, and also when we have a heart attack, 
we feel it in our arms. Now I have to confess, when I had the heart attack, I didn't feel it in my arms. I felt it in my back, right at the, and so when I'm being wheeled down on the gurney, and they say, where's the pain, where's the pain? I said, it's, it's behind my, right here, behind my heart. And they said, well, that's where women have it. You've got a woman's heart. I said, well, thank you. That's a very kind thing to say as I'm being wheeled down on the gurney. So here's what he says. Um, we can't know care unless we let the care in our heart spill out through our hands. And we can't know love from outside of our own loving. Think of Simon. He was, by his loving, he was the one that reaped the love. You know, the love you make is the love you take, is the old Beatles song. So he's saying the same thing. The visionary educator Parker Palmer, my hero, suggests that vocation is that which calls us into who we truly are. Could your vocation be speaking the truth from the heart and service from the heart? Huh. Underneath all the professions and all the job descriptions, our vocation is to embody our authentic self and then to live that self in the world. Yes, to carry your authentic, true nature into the world, no matter what you do. You know, it was Brother Lawrence, um, I can't remember the name of his book, but I think he, he called it Practicing the Presence of Love, and he would say, wash the dishes with love. Do everything you do with love. And he's saying the same thing. Our vocation is to embody our authentic self and then to live that self in the world. And in this way, our vocation or our call is to find what we love and to love what we do. To find what you love and love what you do. Sylvia loves to serve, and so she brings in eggs every Sunday because she loves the young man and his wife who are tending the chickens. She loves gardening. So what if life is about tending your own garden with love, taking care of your kids with love and your pets with love. My, uh, my sponsor, when I was a brand new minister, he was a minister in Sarasota, Florida. Now he's retired, he lives alone, and he was kind of a cold individual. I was surprised to find out that he started rescuing feral cats, and he has like 12 cats. I call him the cat lady, he's a gay guy, lives alone with his cats, and he's in Sarasota, Florida, and he's compromised, he's been in a wheelchair, and so when the Hurricane Ian hit, he hunkered down with his 12 cats. And I got an email from him this morning that he was able to get out finally to get the cats some food at a Publix. And as he was waddling home, he noticed these Mexicans sitting in a driveway, all the children there, and he pulled out the bananas and the fruits and he started giving it to the kids. And they were so happy. And he said, tears came to my eyes. They didn't know that they had so little because they were so grateful for even the littlest of things. So what if we get to be called to serve and we don't even know how it's gonna look? I mean, who would have thought he'd be the cat lady now with 12 cats and he's feeding the little children and he said, I'll be back to feed them again. Yeah, what we love and what we do. Howard Thurman, the great mystic said, don't ask what the world needs, ask what brings you alive and then go and do that. What brings you alive, Joe? You know, when I saw Jody on Thursday night, I realized what really brings her alive is helping, helping these animals in whatever way. They made almost $200,000 that night. And we would have made twice that if I put the tip jar in the buggy with the pocket. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> because the world needs, what the world needs is people who've come alive. They're finding their call to serve. And then his very last thing is, 
Loving what we do involves a continual alignment of the inner with the outer, a commitment to place our care in the world. And when we can bring enough of ourselves to bear on what we do, then the smallest task will open its drudgery and show us its seed of devotion and truth. As I'm watching these floods and devastation in Florida, all of a sudden I notice these guys, they call themselves the Cajun Rescue Team. And wherever there's a disaster, they get their boats out and they were going down the streams rescuing old ladies and dogs and cats. And they call themselves the Cajun Rescue. And you know, it's so funny. I saw Bill Weir, he's out there, you know, with the people in the devastation. And he said, I heard the most profound thing years ago from Mr. Rogers. Do anybody remember Mr. Rogers? And Mr. Rogers said this, and he said, it changed my life. Mr. Rogers said, when there is a disaster in the world, notice who shows up to help. And he said, that's what's important. There's been a disaster in Florida and all over the East Coast. Notice who shows up. I thought of the Cajun rescue people. They wouldn't think twice. There's a necessity. And then I heard the people in, in the uh, rescue center in Naples, Florida. And they said in all the places where the animals, they said they have a whole team and we're working 24-7 to rescue as many as we can. And, and I had tears in my eyes knowing when you're called to serve, you're called to serve. And, and the universe will find a way to make it so. So yeah, so Cajun rescue, the power that comes from loving what you do, waits inside the doing, which means we have to enter what we do and not just handle it. To fully enter what we do, we're not just handling the problem, we're offering, we're offering our soul, we're offering love. Simon gave 100%. He just didn't tap the kid on the shoulder and go off to somebody else with a carrot. No, no. He tuned in to this kid who was deeply suffering and he embraced him and he stayed with him and let the kid bury his head in his shoulder, saying, I am here for you. What a beautiful example for all of us. Yeah, so we're playing with this idea of love this month and uh, so, uh, I've got a gazillion books on love. One of the books is called Love and it starts off by Albert Einstein. And Albert Einstein says to his daughters, posthumously in a letter, if we knew how to harness the energy of love, can you imagine how we would transform the world? Albert Einstein, harness the energies of love. Tehar de Chardin says essentially the same thing. Richard Rohr says, your true nature is love. And the message of the Bible was is to know yourself as love. Well, they're pointing to something really big, aren't they? It was Joel Goldsmith that I was reading this morning. It was called The Gift of Love. And he says, don't think that you are the lover. He said, it's God through you that is doing the loving. Boy, that's a big idea, Anastasia. It's God that's doing the loving. And so then he does this beautiful prayer in the gift of love to offer yourselves to this presence of love so that it might express through you, perceive through you, um, know through you, where wisdom flowers because it recognizes that everything is interconnected like the Dalai Lama said. It was so beautiful in our revealing service. Uh, people were sharing their moments, their divine moments, and so many of them are in nature. Uh, Jody was talking about, what was that called? The, 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 the lights? The, the Northern Lights. The Northern Lights. And Sylvia was referencing them and how you think you're on an acid trip. My God, it's all the colors of the universe. 
And it was so funny, my Zen calendar this morning was um, Ralph Waldo Emerson, and he says, when you can see the common things of life and see the miraculous there, you know you've arrived in this perception of the grace of God is everywhere revealing yourself, in the smallest of things. I shared with the revealing service at 4 a.m. My husband's still on East Coast time. He woke up at 4 thinking it's 5. He's up at 4 in the morning. And he's out on the front porch and there's a and all of a sudden, we're having a love affair with an owl that just happened to show up in our yard. And of course, he said, he's looking for a lover, David. He's looking for his partner. I can tell. I said, oh, you can tell. You can tell. So he's on his Merlin. He's researching it. And I said, why would he be doing it at four in the morning? He said, he's nocturnal. Don't you know that? Owls are nocturnal. I said, oh, of course. And so it's one of those little moments, one of those little how we're all interconnected in this beautiful dance. And then we get to play with that interconnectedness, you know? Adam stopped over the other day to help me with the yard work, and Trey usually turns the compost heap, and he hates doing it because he's 74 now. And I said, Adam, would you mind just turning the compost heap? You know, he's so strong. Within two, 15 minutes, the whole thing was turned. But in turning the compost heap over, we found we have little mice, we have little worms, and all kinds of critters. And he says, what do you want me to do with them? I said, oh, this is their home. They get to stay here. This is where they live. The snakes, the rabbits, and the owl can have plenty of chipmunks. I mean, if that's... And I've got the uh, crickets in the basement for the lizard of choice. And you, you begin to see, my God, how blessed am I to be surrounded by such mystical interconnectedness. And it's all there teaching us. And then you, Joel Goldsmith, he quotes scripture, heavy on scripture. Jesus, if you can see God in the smallest of things, right? If you've done it to the least of me, these, you've done it to me. So again, creating a bigger template that it's all here for us. And how, how vast can we let this experience of what we love manifest in the world in a creative way? I remember as I asked that question, what do I love? When I was 22 years old, I saw a musical called A Chorus Line. And I heard someone sing, God, I'm a dancer, and a dancer dances. And I recognized at that age of 21, 22, that I, my soul wanted to be a dancer. So I yet went another master's degree. This one was in dance, fine arts. And I got as far as the master's thesis. And then Trey flunked out of school, so we went with our tails down to Florida to resurrect the life. But what I got the grace from that was, it took me into my master's thesis, which was on the anatomy of inspiration. And what I really love is the creative process that awakens within the individual. And it's always fresh and it's alive and it's magical. And so even now, 33 years into ministry, there is this creative something that is always awakening within. And it surprises us because it's so much bigger than anything we could have thought of. You're, you're in service to the universe. You're God's expression. That's why John O'Donohue was so spectacular, because he recognized it. You know, in his lovely little book, Beauty, he says, all of this is the expression of God's beauty in the world. And when you can see the beauty out there, it's because the beauty of the divine is awakening within you. And then you find your own car. The soul friend is everywhere. It's in the birds that you see. It's in the little, the little mice in the compost heap. They're so cute. Their little wiggly nose and their little ears. So I pulled out the authority on love. Now, this is a Buddhist teacher who um, talks about love not as this 
you know, Rumi says, what you think of love are but subtle degrees of domination and servitude. He says, but true love comes fully formed like the moonlight in the window. So Thich Nhat Hanh is taking us to a deeper love that is beyond that emotional love of, of other, which is the romantic love. And he talks about the four immeasurable minds of love. And the first immeasurable mind of love is called Mayatri, which is loving kindness. So his first version of love is, may I be filled with loving kindness, may I be well, may I be peaceful and at ease, and may I be happy. Then we'd extend it to the neighbor, may you be filled with loving kindness, may you be well, may you be peaceful and at ease, and may you be happy. I guess I'm using my heart buds, aren't I? That's what they say when you're gesturing. And then the third one is, may we be filled with loving kindness. This is the Mayatri, this is the first level of love. And here's what he says about Mayatri, without understanding, your love is not true love. You must look deeply in order to see and understand the needs, the aspirations, and the sufferings of the one that you love. There's a lot of suffering going on on the planet. Could you reach out to that suffering with your compassion, with your loving kindness? So we all need love, and love brings us joy and well-being. It is as natural as air. And then he goes on in this inner beingness, the inner artist, and this is, you'll love this, Bob. He says, we are loved by the air that we breathe. Gosh, is that too big for you, Anne-Marie? We need fresh air to be happy and well. And then he says, we are loved by the trees that we see. Loved by the trees, Barbara. We need trees to be healthy. And in order to be loved, we have to love, which means we have to understand to really understand that we're all interconnected, that you're not separate from the trees or the air. Don't you love this bigger vision? For our love to continue, he says, we have to take the appropriate action or non-action to protect the air, to protect the trees, and to protect our beloved in whatever form the beloved comes for you. And it's all the beloved. Wow. Well, that's kind of a sweet little way of talking about love, isn't it, Miss Sylvia? The trees, the air, and everything in the universe. And he calls this loving-kindness. Maya tree is loving-kindness. And in Buddhism, the primary meaning of loving-kindness, of love, is friendship. Well, you got to be friendly, Miss Serena. Romeo's your friend. He's not just your lover. That's your dog, by the way. Um, we all have the seeds of love within us. You know, when I studied with Thich Nhat Hanh, he would take a whiteboard and he'd draw a circle. And he'd say, this is your consciousness. And then he'd take that black thing and he put these things and he said these are seeds and he says we get to choose which seeds are we going to water are we going to water the seeds of compassion and loving kindness or are we going to water the seeds of anger and forgiveness or hatred or revenge and he says we're all at, always at choice point take that on so he goes on to say in buddhism the primary meaning of love is friendship so we all have these seeds within us of love within us and we can develop this wonderful source of energy by nurturing the unconditional love that does not expect anything in return. You know, love offers itself not saying, and do you love me back? When I say I love you, that's not a question. Do you love me too? No, it just offers itself. When we understand someone deeply, even someone who has done us harm, we cannot resist loving him or her. As the Sakyamani Buddha declared that the Buddha of the next eon will be named Maitreya, or the Buddha of love. If not, honestly, and the next Buddha is going to be the Buddha of love, not just the awakened one. How about the awakened love? Well, I kind of like that one. Teachings on love. 
from a Buddhist who's supposed to be kind of quiet and empty and free. He's taking you into the heart space. So maybe there's a little Sufi in this sweet little man where the head and the heart come together. So that's Maitreya, the first version of love. Remember, he's got four. The second one is compassion awakens. Think of Simon. Compassion awakens. And this is called Karuna. The second aspect of true love is Karuna. And this is the intention and the capacity. And remember, the Buddha says you don't learn from experience. You learn from your capacity to experience. So what is your capacity for love, Joe? Yeah, I know we've all loved a lot in the past. But what is your capacity now to show up for the moment when a little mouse might be in harm's way? Could you... I'm just using a mouse for as an example. The second aspect of true love is karuna and the intention of capacity to relieve and transform suffering and lighten the sorrows on planet. That's what we're seeing with Ian now, is people stepping in to help with the suffering. And you know what really touches me the most are the people that have the double whites and they have nothing anymore. They don't have a place to live, they don't have a job, and they're crying out for help. Could compassion awaken within humanity? It's a big time for compassion right now. So he says, this is how he does it, to develop compassion in ourselves, we need to practice mindful breathing. God, it's so important to breathe. Deep listening. Listen to what isn't being said. And deep looking. He talks about the Lotus Sutra, describes the Avlatushvara, or the Bodhisattva practice, which is looking with the eyes of compassion and listening deeply to the cries of the world. That's what you are, Robert, you're a Bodhisattva, looking with the eyes of compassion and listening deeply to the cries of the world. Compassion contains deep concern. And so you look and listen deeply to the person who's in pain and you validate their suffering. So there's another form of love, that form of compassion to meet the suffering of the planet. And um, what, a, what a grace-filled moment that is, you know? The third, and a little bit more upbeat, Anastasia, is joy. And it's called mudita. These are his words. The third element of true love is mudita, or joy. True love always brings joy to ourselves and to the ones we love. If love does not bring us joy to both of us, well, maybe it's not true love. You know, when you have a four-legged, they need to bring you joy. I get so much joy out of that little pug now. He comes to satsang in class and he waddles around. He can't see, but he can smell you. Trey came home yesterday and he, he could hear him. I couldn't hear him, couldn't see him. So Trey put his foot down by him and Humphrey smelled him. And then this morning when Trey got up at four, Humphrey woke up and he couldn't smell him. He's sitting at the edge of the bed and he's barking and barking and barking. And I carried him downstairs where he's out there listening to the owl and I put the pug by him and I said, here, mudita, have some joy. Dwelling happily in the present moment. We don't rush to the future. We know that everything is here in the present moment. Let joy be your compass. Yeah, love brings you great joy, doesn't it? I had so much fun on Thursday night with Jody and the pug. Everybody else was drinking and I'm just laughing away as people thought he was a tragic case. And then the final form of love, and this is my absolute favorite, that love truly is equanimity itself. You don't love the things that feel good, nor hate the things that don't feel good. You have love with equanimity, love with paradox. It's all paradox. The very thing that is causing me this suffering is really the thing that's setting me free. So here's what he says about equanimity. 
If your love has attachment, discrimination, prejudice, and clinging in it, that is a true love. The Buddhists always have to get rid of that stuff. The wisdom of equanimity or equality is the ability to see everyone as equal and discriminating between ourselves and others. There's no discrimination. This is called upuksha. Upuksha. Your love may become possessive, and it, like a summer breeze, it can be very refreshing. But if we try to put it in a tin can, well, then we will destroy the freshness of that love. So he's inviting us to have an equality in our love, to love everything with equanimity. The stuff that so uh, our beloved is the same. He's like a cloud or a breeze or a flower. If you imprison him in a tin can, well, then you haven't really truly loved. So true love allows you to preserve your freedom and the freedom of your beloved, and that is upeksha. These are the four immeasurable aspects of love. Loving kindness, compassion, joy, and above all, upeksha, equality or equanimity. So let's do a little um, going within. Jody's back by the bell and synthesize that. You know, our teaching, the science of mind, is a synthesis of all the great spiritual truths. And what if that's what we get to do with love itself, to synthesize the idea of love? By touching our heart space and asking that simple question, what do you love? And then deeply listening to that still small voice. It doesn't really speak in words, but that reveals itself through a felt awareness. The beautiful thing about deeply listening is you don't have to get a response. Oftentimes when I go into that place of reflection, I experience a smile within my heart, like you've come home. You've come home to this nurturing place that's always been there. But for some reason, you've distracted yourself with worldly concerns. But for this brief time, we're going to stop identifying with the struggle. And we're going to turn to that mm, that creative something. Emerson says it's an infinite presence that lies stretched in smiling repose. What a delicious image for the soul. An infinite presence that lies stretched in smiling repose within all creation. So the Namaste consciousness basically says that infinite presence within me bows to that same infinite presence within you. And when we meet there, there's only one here. It's the love that knows no other. And when we extend ourselves through upeksha, through compassion, loving kindness, the joyful expression, are revealing this imprisoned splendor to the world.
no longer imprisoned, but revealed and expressed and allowed. I live by a very simple principle. Ernest Holmes said divine love brings together and maintains together those who belong together. In that radical trust in divine love, you get to open the grace of life and how it connects those who need to connect. Our interconnectedness, our inner beingness, whether it's a tree, whether it's the air that we breathe, whether it's the owl at four in the morning, it's all here by divine appointment, all of it. The stuff that makes us uncomfortable and the stuff that thrills us is all here for us in the divine scheme of things. And so we open our heart wide at this time on the planet. And we offer that presence that we so humbly reveal through grace, through our open-hearted awareness, offer our life to the world in service. Love, serve, and remember. It says in the Quran, when you remember him, he remembers you. When you remember divine love is what we are, then that divine love awakens within you and in me. It doesn't belong to us, so we offer it to the world so deeply in need of an open-hearted awareness to rest our head on the beautiful heart of Simon as an image to hold in your heart, as I did yesterday. Feel the stillness, feel the love. When you feel it, it's real. So if you feel comfortable placing your hand on your heart, the Sufis say that's the cave wherein God lies. And so to this essential self, within and all around, let's say the heart salutation. I honor you. Cherish you. I love you. You are the unfolding expression of divine love. Revealing her mystery. Exposing her compassion. Celebrating her uniqueness. As you unfold with ease and grace with every moment, as your task, to be here now, radiating light and love, into the moment that needs it, with joy and equanimity, let it unfold, playful expression.
Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information, please visit www.cslhuntsville.org. To create a brand